We're a green market provider. We don't manufacture anything. You might say we remanufacture. We think of it as repair and refurbish. Using assets is just inherently green. I mean, preventing you know, mining, manufacturing, the use of base metals, precious metals, rare earth elements, highly refined glass, emissions reductions, because we're giving technology a useful life beyond the first owner. And we try to extend the life as long as we can. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Gordon Smith, CEO of Sagent Networking Solutions. Know what your networks now. He joins us from Capel, Texas. Welcome, Gordon. Oh, it's great to be here, Vidya. While I did research for this episode, I was trying to pinpoint exactly what Sagent does and how your company impacts the everyday consumer. Right. What role does Sagent play? We uh, maybe first to understand the company. We're totally a B two B business to business organization. So our impact on the consumer is indirect because we're not selling them consumer devices. What we do is we support networks, network operators, and the network operators could be telecom operators, they could be cable MSOs providing you know, ISP or TV service, or they could be private network operators, those who are operating a network for their own purpose, not to sell service on that network. Mm-hmm. What we do is we focus on the infrastructure side. So we don't deal with handsets, tablets, personal computers, but we operate in the infrastructure side, the large equipment that makes the networks operate. And within that space, we both decommission infrastructure assets, we refurbish, we repair, and we resell those assets. So the impact on the consumer is that we have is somewhat secondary, although there's a lot of environmental good and data analytics that we bring to the table for our carrier customers. So when you say networks, it's as a business, I would have many of my computers of the people who work in that organization connected to one network, and you provide the hardware for it, right? Correct. So servers, storage devices, and when you get into telecom networks, there's radio access equipment, the cell sites, the propagation of RF signals, Mm -hmm. the cable network equipment at their head ends, their hub sites, the core network equipment that drives the radio access network or the cell system. That's all the equipment that we get involved in. We don't get involved in consumer devices like, as I mentioned, handsets and tablets and laptops. That's not our business. Are you a manufacturer or are you a green market provider? We're a green market provider. We don't manufacture anything. You might say we remanufacture. We think of it as repair and refurbish because we're not rebuilding something from base components. What we do is take a complete unit and make it marketable again. So that'll run through our lab. It'll run through our test processes. We'll do cosmetic repairs. We'll do functional repairs to the unit. But we don't manufacture and we don't compete with the manufacturers in that sense. Mm -hmm. We extend the life of products, though. I was under the impression a lot of our electronics went overseas for being recycled, repurposed, or even broken down for their rare earth. How much of that is actually stateside? All of our operations in terms of our repair and refurbishment are domestic, so they're stateside. Our outlets, as happens through normal technology cycles, a lot of what we purchase in the United States or take on a 
consignment program from a network operator in the U.S. Mm-hmm. will end up being sold throughout Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, often to countries where there might be a, a generation of technology behind Europe, behind North America. It's just a, a logical life cycle that, that seems to be consistent over the last 30 years that I've been in the business. So there are some environmental challenges in doing what you do. If it's like a simple repair that you just upgrade the RAM or the hard drive, those are different. But if you actually are doing some data destruction or something else, you know, there are some environmental impact to that, right? Absolutely. So what we do is any item that has memory, we're going to work through the Department of Defense triple white process, which is what we use, just to make sure there's absolutely no consumer data on anything that we're going to be resold. In addition to which, we would bring the firmware and software down to what we call Rev Zero, so that it's in its original software form, so it can be used in a network. We don't sell licenses. We don't sell software. We don't sell firmware. The end user would then have to buy a license from the manufacturers in order to make it operate in their network. But we provide the fully refurbished hardware that they can use in their their operation. And typically, a refurbished product will sell anywhere from 20 to 60% of new. But you get that what is still current technology, in some cases legacy technology, it's not going to be leading-edge technology. Mm -hmm. But understanding the life cycle of wireless is a good example where usually we underwrite technology life cycles, the OEMs and the carriers will, based on a 7 to 10-year life cycle. In fact, in actuality, it's usually more 20 years because there's a long tail at the end. You know, the generations 1G to 2G and now we're into 5G. Typically, you're going to look at about 10 years between the launch of each. It could be eight years, could be nine years. I think it was eight years between 4G and 5G. We're still going to be supporting 4G networks for another decade. 3G networks are still operational in many parts of the world, including the United States. You talked about the defense data wiping technology. What does that entail? The actual software is KillDisk, which is a commonly used data wiping software. But the triple white process is you put it through the data wiping procedure three times to make sure, you know, once is sufficient, twice is you're absolutely sure. And third time is just a safety analysis just to make sure that uh, there is absolutely no usable data left on any memory. So your company was started about 18 years ago in 2000 and... We just crossed our 20th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in 2001, we were formed. We've had a couple of name changes, but the company's been the same for 20 years. Significant growth along the way. Are you the founder? I'm not. I've been here a little over 10 years. The founders were friends of mine who I've worked with in the industry in the past. In 2013, they sold the business and then we bought ourselves back out, uh, myself and an investment group in 2018. How was this company founded? Yeah. What was their motivation to found this company? It was founded as a telecommunications reseller, reselling telecommunications infrastructure equipment. The interesting thing about that, maybe by positional luck or more good luck than good planning, what we found as the company matured is we're very much in the green market space where we're making contributions to the circular economy. And when I say it's good luck as much as good planning, reusing assets is just inherently green. I mean, preventing you know, mining, manufacturing, the use of base metals, precious metals, rare earth elements, highly refined glass, emissions reductions, mm-hmm. because we're giving technology a useful life beyond the first owner. 
In some cases, you can get two or three different operators that have used the same product, and it's sound product. The manufacturers bring tremendous technology to the market, and we try to extend the life as long as we can. You referred to green market a couple of times. Yes. Could you elaborate on what exactly is green market? How is it different than when I go to Best Buy and they give me a refurbished computer? It's similar in that regard. We refer to green market back, uh, I'm going to date myself here, but back in the maybe the early aughts or the, probably the 90s, the term gray market came to light and it was coined by manufacturers who thought of us as the used car industry. And it was a way of saying, you know, it's not the black market, but it's not really the white market either. So they termed the, coined the phrase gray market. Mm-hmm. We look at it differently. We think we're actually doing more environmental good than in some cases they are in that we're extending the life of assets, diverting e-waste streams, making contributions to the circular economy. So the fact is we think we're, we're contributing very heavily to the green economy, the green market vernacular, as opposed to the gray market vernacular. So you primarily operate on the right to repair legislation, right? We do. All of our test systems have licensed software on them, which we have to purchase ourselves. But the the right to repair legislation is key. I'm glad that's now being adopted, moving through the channels in Washington. It sort of sets the standard. It removes any doubt about what consumers' right is. And in, in our case, our customers' rights are, who are not directly consumers, but they're business operators. But that is definitely key legislation. But only about 25 uh, states, I believe, have it. Does Texas have it where you're located and your plants are located? I believe under Biden's initiative, it will become federal. That's what we're really waiting on. It's uh, with the FCC and FTC now, I believe, for review. And the recommendations are all favorable that they'll move forward on a on a national basis. Europe's a little further ahead of us in this regard where the right to repair is already legislated. Right to repair is the norm. Yeah, you wouldn't have so many different chargers, thinking about it on a very small individual consumer level. And of course, you're dealing with bigger equipments, bigger servers, and you know, things like that. Right, absolutely. What sort of warranties do the purchaser get, whether they are in the U.S. or when you export it? You know, air quote standard warranty is one year, and that's for anything that uh, malfunctions in the product. That's for both equipment sales as well as repair as a service, because a lot of our business is actually not repairing for the purpose of resale. It's repairing telecom carriers' network asset to give back to the carrier we just charge for the service. Mm-hmm. One-year warranty standard, depending on the product type, we often offer two years. We even offer up to five years on certain core network equipment because we know it's it's inherently stable product. The one-year applies mainly to radio access network or cell site systems that are have environmental challenges. They're sitting out there in the heat, in the cold, in the rain. You can have a, a weather gasket fail and you get water penetration. You can have high heat and end up with um, surges of power within the units. So there's reasons that we don't offer longer than one year on cellular systems. But when we get to the core network and even switches and servers and uh, storage devices, we can offer extended warranties on those. It's sort of a case-by-case, product-by-product, and in some cases, a negotiated term within our carrier contracts. The reason I was wondering, if it goes overseas and the main purpose of this and part of what Sagen's business is to repair it, how would something which goes to Latin America get repaired past the one year? Because extending the life after all this work for a year is not sufficient. We would hope that the purchaser could self-repair or have a place 
or person who could repair it for them. You're right. And it can become uneconomical to move a product from Latin America back to the United States, repair it, and send it back again. We typically honor foreign warranties through an advanced replacement program where we will actually send replacement product, get the defective product back, and then we'd repair it and replenish our stock. You raise a good point. There's an economy to it. Now, we track a lot of different metrics in our space, and one of them is mean time to failure. And we know the mean time to failure on almost every unit. Manufacturers publish it. We have our own data. So we know that the mean time to failure on most of the products we're sending back is five to 10 years. So yes, you could have a failure after one year. It's rare. If it's gone through a full refurbishment process, it doesn't happen very often. Our warranty rates within a one-year warranty are something in the order of 3%. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not the norm. So Sagent has the approach of the six R's. Yes. And they are divided into your service side and your product side. Could you talk specifically about product side? We have talked a little bit about it, but give me more meat to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first one we talk about is reporting. And that's, you know, on the surface sounds very vague, but it leads to our data analytics and how we present data to our customers. And it goes very much hand in hand with our environmental initiatives. Uh, Our reporting isn't just send an Excel spreadsheet, send a flat file, send a, you know, access to a SQL database. We try to present the data that we collect. Vidi, on average, on a typical repair, we're collecting 50 to 55 different data points. And that data point is, you know, from the time we issue an, an RMA to the time it hits our dock, where it moves in the facility. But most importantly, we get down to the root cause of failure. We get to the components that were replaced, the technician time that was spent on the unit, the outbound testing, the test data sheets, which we provide to our customers. Mm-hmm. It becomes an overwhelming amount of data for our customers. I think our website says we repair and refurbish 850,000 parts per year. It'll be closer to a million this year. And you think about a million repairs, 100,000 could be with one customer times 50 to say 60 data points. It's too much data. So we analyze that data and give them back actionable information. Like what are the common modes of failure? Did the product even need to come to us? Could it be fixed in the field? What we call avoidable incidents mm-hmm. in a way that they can drill down and, and see that, well, I've got a training issue in Chicago because my incidents are much higher in that market. Or I've got a, a manufacturing issue with this product because the common mode of failure 90% of the time is this one component. I need to talk to my manufacturer to get it corrected upstream. So we give them this data in a very meaningful way. Because it's just not useful to do data dumps and have someone else analyze it. We have all the information. Let's give it to our customers in a very meaningful way. So that's the reporting that we provide. And as you you can drill down to our website and see some of the reports that we do provide our customers, we have two overarching themes of the company. What we do is one thing, but how we do it is the important piece. At least to me, it is. And how are you different than other traditional just repair companies? Right, exactly. So in the two main differentiators are attention to the environment and then our data analytics, which we brand Sagent Insights. Insights can be an overused word these days. Everyone's got an insights platform. The the reason we use it is because we provide our customers true insights into their network, you know, to our cause, know what your network knows, which you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We try and give them as much knowledge about the network as possible. So the data analytics Sagent Insights, in combination with the environmental good, we run through our whole organization, regardless of what service we're offering. Do you, by any chance, use RFID technology to track the products or collect this data? It's customer-driven, not 
driven by us because we're seeing product after it's already, we're not launching new product. We're not a leading or bleeding edge company. If our customers have RFID systems, we have one major OEM customer that we've implemented an RFID system specifically for them because they use it. They use RFID so they know when a product is crossed our dock inbound, when it's crossed our dock outbound, we can actually tell them when it's gone into the lab, out of the lab, into the warehouse. So it's really more customer driven rather than us pushing that to our customers. How do you price these? You said how many million products do you do every year? We sell about 2 million assets per year. We actually repair and refurbish about a million. Uh, Not everything that passes through our doors goes through a refurbishment program. Some of it is perfectly sufficient in its current form. Some of it's new inbox and as far as that goes. How do we price it? It's usually based on a, a very detailed analysis of what are the common components that you're going to need? What are the modes of failure? How much testing time? How much technician time? Mm-hmm. It's interesting what's happened with the supply chain disruptions that we've seen in the last 18 months. Packaging supplies, we used to kind of ignore that as an input. We can't ignore that anymore. They're very expensive now. Freight costs have increased. So we get to the root of the cost components and build that up, apply a margin. You know, if we're repairing a what I call a radio head, which is used to be a base station sitting at the bottom of the tower. When you drove by a telecommunications tower, you used to see these cabinets at the bottom. Most of that technology is now at the top of the tower, much smaller form factor. If we're repairing a radio head, it may be three to $400. If we're repairing a simple rectifier, that might be $110. So it varies by technology and what work we're putting into it. The reason I asked is when you have so much variations and you don't know what you're getting into, you know, like when you get all this there should be some sort of a system for you to be able to cost it effectively and in a profitable manner. Yeah, our our repair work is all contractual. So we'll do the research up front before we provide pricing. So we have a, you know, any given customer, we could have a 100 or 150 different SKUs we're repairing for them. And a lot of those are interrelated. One's attached to another, to another. So sometimes we can use common platforms, common test beds and test procedures. So these are, you're talking about the ones that you have a service contract with, but what about the refurbishing that you do? How is it possible to price that? Price it for either repair and give it back to the person or repair it and sell it. I saw that you even sell on Amazon. We do. We don't do a lot of sales on Amazon. Amazon's a very useful platform for us to sell either distressed inventory, things that we're not moving directly to businesses or that we come by as part of a what we call lot sale in some cases, or lot buy, a network operator. I don't want to talk names of our customers, but a tier one U.S. wireless company might want us to clean out an entire facility. They're closing down a switch office. And with that comes products that we don't typically work on, but have some attraction to consumers. Mm-hmm. We'll post those on Amazon because it's not really our core business to sell to consumers, but that only represents about five to six percent of our sales. Most of it is just directly working with the network operators. Most of your work is done in Texas, right? So how do you find trained people? This is mostly a good thing. There's, there's a downside to it, but the DFW area is really the telecom center of the United States. And that goes back to a number of companies putting their U.S. headquarters here years ago. Nortel did it, the old Canadian manufacturer. Ericsson's U.S. headquarters is here. Nokia's had a major presence here, and they're one of their predecessor companies, Alcatel-Lucent. So there's a real telecom hub, which has made it easier to find talent. We've got very good 
tech schools here. All of our technicians have an associate's degree in electronics. That's sort of the, the standard that we look for. And then we can train them from there. The downside I was talking about, and this is not as down as the favorable market that we reside in, is that other people are very attracted to it too. So retention becomes, at some times, can be a challenge as well. It is definitely a competitive market. Mm-hmm. I think it's a competitive market around the country in all sorts of industries. The telecom market in Dallas right now is very competitive. My opening statement, I talked about how we have on the podcast businesses which employ environmental, social, and economically sustainable practices. We spoke about the environmental part. How are you socially and say in terms of how you work with your employees, the ethics that your company practices, how are you distinguishing yourself? How are your practices different? I'll talk about social and governance together if I could. We talk about our social part of ESG. We really talk about the relationships we have with our employees, with our ownership, with our vendors, with our customers, and also with our community. First and foremost, we have a employment, health, and well-being programs as part of both our insurance package and as well as human resource representation within the facility. We do have a formal workplace safety program. We have several certifications, and this lends itself to government as well as social. We have a uh, quality management system certified by ISO 9001, uh, which we audit on an annual basis. We have an environmental management system, which is ISO 14001. Uh, again, annual audits, some of them surveillance, some of them com- uh, recertifications. And we have an occupational, self, occupational health and safety program. It was OSHA 18001. It's changed now to ISO 45001. Mm-hmm. All those are driven at certainly the health and safety and the quality are driven towards the employee well-being and our customers' quality, taking care of them. And then the environmental one stands, you know, obviously for, you know, what we believe in and our positive contributions to the economy. We have formal inclusion and diversity program. And then we have uh, community engagement. We've been involved. This has been a little challenging during the pandemic, but we've had several events in the past with zero cancer and uh, blood drive through Carter Blood Care. We take part in Special Olympics events. We contribute to Ronald McDonald House. What this all means is we do have a an employee base that we're very proud of and hopefully we're proud of the way we run the company. We have been certified two years in a row as a great place to work mm-hmm. with the hopefully third year in a row coming up here soon where we'll go through the formal process. And we were very proud to be renewed last year just because the pandemic was such a weird year in 2020 and we all thought we'd be through it by now and we're not. So we'll, we'll hopefully get some, some more good results. And you talked about some safety provisions or employee benefits. How much is that required by the laws and regulations of the state or the federal or the IRS or OSHA? And how much have you gone beyond that? You know, with the benefits, there's no legal requirement to provide except in certain states, but you have to in order to be competitive. We're a company of about 180 employees currently. We think our benefits, all of the health benefits, the dental, the short-term disability, the long-term disability, the 401k plan are things that we've decided, you know, there's an economic interest to the company. We have to maintain our employee base. We have to minimize our attrition. Mm -hmm. We look at it as how are we going to keep very good people supported while they're in our employ. On the OSHA side, similarly, there's certain laws you have to follow. We do go above and beyond in terms of our reporting. For example, I mean, our ISO 45,000 
one certification is something that we don't have to do by law. We do it because we think it's the right thing to do. And these things are not inexpensive, but if you don't have a formal safety management system, you don't really know how you're doing. You can report whatever you want. You might, you know, and because we're audited, our reporting is extremely accurate because auditors are good at what they do. I don't know that everyone reports as they should, but that's just a tenant of the company that we're going to do that. Where do you see Sagent in the next three years? You talked about the Biden administration's potential right to repair expansion and other progressive initiatives that are in process. Where do you see Sagent in the next three years or what are your wishes for Sagent? We want to continue to expand our services portfolio, specifically in repair, also in third-party maintenance and field services, specifically repair. We like having the technology center. It differentiates us. Within the reseller community, you need a phone and a computer and you're in business. If you visit our facilities, we've got very significant investment in our labs. So customers know when they come and see our facility that we've got the same equipment that they have in their network. Our testing procedures can be audited. Our engineering group is often present in our customer visits. Mm -hmm. That's a very much a differentiator for us in terms of customer satisfaction. So we want to build on that. Where we see ourselves in three years is significant investment in that area. We're building our second lab now, albeit domestic. It's in California, so it feels like it's foreign to a Texan. But we want to be present in Europe, probably Eastern Europe, either within the EU or just outside the EU. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we'll be in Latin America as well. You touched on something interesting earlier, video about just how practical is a warranty if you're not, you know, in the same country. Repair lends itself to being a, if not local, a regional business because freight is an expensive aspect of the cost inputs. If you look at a, a typical outage and what it costs a network operator, and we've worked through this with several of our customers, an outage or failure in their network could cost in the range of $3,500 when you consider the truck rolls, the technician time, possibly a tower climb the freight, the logistics. So that $3,500, you look at that and we're only $300 of that. We're less than 10% of the total cost of an outage. You don't want to kill yourself with freight. You want to be in that market to keep the cost down. Now, we wouldn't build a repair facility in every country. Within regions, often you can move product fairly easily. We, we're looking at uh, in Europe, either Hungary or the Ukraine. In Latin America, Mexico is a logical location. We're also looking at Colombia. Mm-hmm. possibly Brazil. Brazil is a big enough market to justify just if we only got work from Brazilian carriers. But that's where we see ourselves, expanding our services portfolio. We engender the trust of our customers and equipment sales will follow. Wishing you all the best. Thank you so much, Gordon, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for having me, Vidya. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.